Chernyshevsky's story is interspersed with dream sequences, of which the most celebrated is the fourth. Here, in 11 sections, the protagonist, Vera Pavlovna, journeys from the ancient past to a strange, affecting, utopian future. The hinge point of the book, the fulcrum from history to possibility, is the fourth dreams, section seven. That section, in its entirety, forms the epigraph to this book. It is two rows of dots, something ostentatiously unspoken, the transition from injustice to emancipation. Informed readers would understand that behind the extended ellipsis lay revolution. With such discretion, the author evaded the censor. But there is something almost religious, too, in this unwriting from this atheist son of a priest, a political via negativa, an apophatic revolutionism. For those who cleave to it, a paradox of actually existing revolution is that in its potential for utter reconfiguration, it is precisely beyond words, a messianic interruption, one that emerges from the quotidian, unsayable, yet the culmination of everyday exhortations, beyond language and of it, beyond representation and not. Chernyshevsky's dots, then, are one iteration of a strange story. And the urgent gasp that he has follow those dots, what will it be like? That question from the present vantage point in history can only hurt. Welcome to this episode of Too Long for Twitter. My name is Erica West. I'm still Kristen Sheets. <laughs> um, and this episode is about the Russian Revolution, air horn noise. Uh, I... It's the big guy, the big historical event that all leftists should be excited about. But not all leftists are excited about it, but that's okay. Not I all mean, just are, and some take different lessons from it. And, you know, I think figuring out what you think about the Russian Revolution is important, listener. This episode is a little bit of a throwback. If you live in the Bay Area, hopefully you're familiar with something called the Howard's Inn Book Fair. If you're not familiar, check it out. This year's going to be really lit. It's a very cool, like it's a very big gathering of the radical left in the Bay Area. And it's something that I think has been, I think it's going to be its fourth annual Mm -hmm. this upcoming year. And it's Definitely, I think, reminiscent of, like, what the Bay Area left used to feel like. A big gathering of a bunch of different tendencies, workshops, a really awesome book room with tons of different lefty publishers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of art. So lot there's, of art. like, poets and things like that. It's really great. And so it's usually in November of December of every year. So last year, we um, interviewed one of our comrades about the Russian Revolution. And that's what you're going to hear later in this episode. But Chris and I are just going to talk a little bit about it. If you're a leftist, maybe you have some familiarity with the Russian Revolution. But also, sometimes it feels like this iteration of the left is almost like starting from scratch. We aren't. There's so much history. But um, I think a lot of newer people who consider themselves socialist or radicals or, you know, left liberals or Bernie Kratz, whatever word, maybe they don't understand like the weight of 
I mean, Revolution, also in historically. mainstream schooling, the Russian Revolution isn't something that's really taught at all. My memories from public school learning about world history is you're learning about World War One and Russia's on the side of the Allies, but then they're not because they're not in the war anymore because they're having some revolution. And then all of a sudden you're talking about Stalin and then Stalin's bad. And that's mm-hmm. like all you hear about what's this communist revolution Russia looked like, um, which is just... There's so much history there, and I think as people interested in revolution, looking at the revolutions that have happened in the past, both those have been successful, unsuccessful, or ones that were successful for a period and then succumbed to a counter-revolution, looking at all of those pieces of history is really important in terms of not like emulating them, but learning some of those lessons and contextualizing what's different, what's the same, what mistakes do they make, what things were strategically good. And the Russian Revolution is something that's inspired a lot of people around the world for a hundred years, and mm-hmm. it's important to one hundred and one now. <laughs> wow! Thank wow. you. Um, I was rounding. <laughs> so this interview is conducted at um, the Howardson Book Fair in San Francisco in twenty seventeen with Todd Cretien. Cretien is the French pronunciation, but I don't speak French. But he um, edited a recent book from Haymarket Books called Eyewitnesses to the Russian Revolution, which is what it sounds like, eyewitnesses. So if you maybe have an idea of the Russian Revolution just being Stalin or Lenin, just kind of one or two men leading the whole thing, it really was a mass uprising of ordinary people. And that's why it's something that we keep coming back to, because... You know, we're revolutionaries, but the struggle is so low right now. Things feel so horrible. It's hard to even imagine that you could get a win in, let alone like overthrow government, have worker control of the economy. You can't even fathom it. But reading about people who went through these things and the struggles they faced and like Kristen said, not being dogmatic and doing what they did, but just learning about the possibilities and what we can learn from them. It's crazy inspiring. Todd's book is really a great resource if you're interested in getting into some first-person sources but don't really know where to start. It's very accessible but goes into a significant amount of depth. He basically goes through the history of the revolution through different eyewitness accounts, providing commentary and summaries of what the historical context for these events were from a variety of different sources. So both You know, you're reading things that Lenin and Trotsky wrote when things were happening, but also he's got a fairly right wing French military attache and what that person's perspective was. And it's definitely sympathetic to the Bolshevik perspective, but you're seeing what was happening day by day with what people thought about those events. Um, It's I, I thought it was a really great book. China Mieville's October is similar in the sense that it's nonfiction, but I think he says even in like in the introduction, you know, it's nonfiction. He's telling the story of the Russian Revolution, but he's not going to pretend he's not biased. You know, he's also a revolutionary and it paints this beautiful picture of beautiful and harrowing, right? Like revolutions are not an easy thing to do and things are very intense. And so it's a really intense read, but I'm sure people who are listening to this have read that book or are familiar with it. But if you haven't, it's really beautiful and reads like fiction, which is awesome as someone who doesn't ever read fiction anymore. 
China's also got like a very interesting literary style. There's like a lot of literary flair. And I love to read fiction and just have been in this nonfiction Marxist hole for, you know, years at this point. Mm-hmm. And reading something that's got a little bit of literary flamboyance to it was very interesting, but also like very different to read. And that was exciting. And I just got back from historical materialism in Montreal. Um, the theme of the conference was the Great Transition. It was about revolutionary practice and also ideas of like post-revolutionary life, like what that could look like. So we talked a little bit about different angles of what happened in 1917. Todd spoke a bit about workers' control and what that looked like. Um, John Riddell, who is also a independent researcher on this topic, um, and a long-term socialist uh, spoke about the question of national liberation and what this meant. And I talked about the role of women in the revolutionary movement and the gains for women after the revolution. It was, it was interesting. What happened in 1917 can't be really divorced from the context of World War I. Uh, Russia was very much involved in the war effort, and it had had a huge impact on life in Russia. Half of the male population had been killed or were at the front lines. People, which were mostly women and children in the cities, were starving. Women had been pushed, were already being pushed into industrial work before 1917. But with many men at the front, this increased. There were also other dynamics that sort of put a revolutionary perspective on the table in, you know, the late 19th century. So in 1861, you have the abolition of serfdom. So Russia still had a tradition of peasants being literally like legally bound and tied to the land. Um, and this was abolished in the, the mid-19th century, which kind of raised many different conversations in civil life about like, what about the role of women talking about universal suffrage or higher education access, which wasn't something that was available to women in Russia in the 1900s. Um, bourgeois or aristocratic women would sometimes travel abroad for education, but more likely than not um, were taught by private tutors in the home. And most people in Russia and most women um, were illiterate, were part of a, a mass peasantry. But alongside that, you had some of the most sophisticated factories uh, in Moscow and Petersburg in particular, um, alongside a, an agrarian traditional population. So you had some of these tensions. That's what people mean when they say, like, Russia was air quotes, backwards, like a backwards economy. Yeah, they mean that like it was super agrarian. Also, like the way that the agrarian work was happening, like the peasants in Russia who were farming the land were using tools that were used in the 17th century. Like Mm -hmm. they hadn't modernized to different kinds of plows and tills and things that were being used in other parts in Europe, like in Germany, Um, which changes the dynamic of the amount of surplus value you can extract from that labor. Also, an- another dynamic was there was an absolute monarchy in Russia. There was a czar, was like an emperor uh, dynastic. It was from the royal family. The Romanovs had ruled Russia for 300 years. After the revolution of 1905, so there was this like revolution that happened a little more than a decade before the 1917 revolution, which kind of set the stage for what could happen and sometimes is referred to as like a a rehearsal. Um, It had kind of 
influenced people's thoughts about what was possible as well. I was going to say one thing about 1917 and like the monarchy at the time that really struck me when I was reading China's book is so this is Tsar Nicholas II Mm -hmm. and you know when you read the account of all the things that happened to lead up to the Russian Revolution it's like so many little things had to happen for this to get in place and one thing that happens is that this man Nicholas II was like very incompetent like throughout this whole year people are really like coming to him and being like dude you know things are happening people are are pissed to put it lightly um and he just is super incompetent and is kind of in this he kind of stays in this bubble he's like kind of in denial about the whole thing yeah in denial and also like very removed from like political reality and like one of the characters of like the Russian Revolution that most people in the mainstream know is Rasputin, who really wasn't that influential. But so if you've seen Anastasia, <laughs> you've seen dude, Anastasia. reading China's book, I thought about Anastasia so much because you you love Anastasia and you're like, oh, my God, she was a Romanov. She's the enemy. Like <laughs> this propaganda from Disney. It's just ugh. but their portrayal of Rasputin, I bet, is so that to me is what I imagine Rasputin to look like. This the creepy Zombified yeah, so he's like a um, wizard man. Was a like a mystic who got into the yeah. imperial family's circle, wiggled his and, way in, kind of like a, a grifter. Yeah, he was very um, influential for the Tsarina Nicholas's wife, and it just kind of shows like how detached they were and how like removed they were from any sort of political reality. That like this weird dude was like somebody that was influencing their behavior and their thoughts. But I think in terms of what actually politically happened in 1917, besides just showing like how out of touch they were, he didn't have that much sway. Um, Really quickly, I want to go back to Anastasia. That's my purview. One, you know, fuck that propaganda of Anastasia, even though the songs are great. Two, um, we just want to give a, a quick shout out to Disney workers who are super underpaid and are starting to organize. And that's something we're going to talk about a little bit more in this episode. But um, it's really exciting to see these different sectors of workers um, realizing their power and getting organized and striking. So we just wanted to give a quick shout out to them. But, cool. So it's 1917. So just to, so the revolution happens in two parts, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, there's growing discontent from the war. There's not enough to eat. On International Women's Day, which is a tradition that was introduced in Russia by women Bolsheviks uh, several years earlier, there's a plan for um, a strike of women workers, essentially. And after two days, this strike of women who are mostly raising up slogans demanding bread um, transforms into a general strike in St. Petersburg. And the slogans really evolve during this period of really intense struggle these few days so it goes from being like a bread riot to raising slogans like down with the war and down with the autocracy which is just like a really big deal as a result of that period of activity the czar is actually forced to step down and a provisional government provisional bourgeois government is basically established um out of the duma there's also 
organizations that existed in February spontaneously reemerge, um, which are the Soviets, which are councils of workers and soldiers. They also have a pull and send representatives. So you have a period between February and October that's usually referred to as dual power, where both the Soviets and the provisional government are attempting to rule Russia. And that has contradictions there and tensions around. Yeah, different sections of the working class or um, there's there's also various political parties at this time. And so different people are kind of deciding like who they're going to take direction from, who has the most sway with like, you know, the masses of people. There's a great thing in... Um... <laughs> In Todd's book where he goes through a Lenin piece where Lenin just really didactically lays out the different political parties in Russia and whose side they are on on different questions. There were multiple socialist parties, too, at the time that were competing Mm -hmm. or multiple socialist tendencies that were competing. A lot of things happen in between. I don't want to go like super into the weeds. A lot of things happen between February and October, Um, a continuation of strikes provisional government continues with the war, which is hugely unpopular in Russia. There's a counter-revolution against the provisional government. Very complicated set of things, Mm -hmm. but it's really interesting, and I highly encourage you to read it. Um, But it basically culminates in October, where the Bolsheviks take power, and they storm the Winter Palace and um, proclaim all power to the Soviets. So in, in this sort of struggle between the provisional government and the Soviets. Um, The Soviets end up winning that struggle after October. But that also comes at a cost almost immediately. There's a counter-revolution of a a mixture of people that supported the provisional government and also monarchy, um, along with many different capitalist countries invading Russia. Yeah. I mean, that's like the high level, but it's also like when you're reading these stories, it's really, especially I've been very much focused on the role of women in these struggles. And it's very, how much ordinary people's lives were changed through this period of revolutionary struggle. And in particular, like women who, even in comparison to the rest of the world in the 1900s, were super disenfranchised and like had some of the most stringent patriarchal demands on them. Like you had to have an internal passport to travel anywhere without your husband or Mm -hmm. father. Like that's like a very intense situation to be as a person. And after October, how people's lives were changed, like divorce was automatic, like was almost immediately made legal and civil. So you no longer had to deal with the church. Abortion was legalized and made free so you could get abortion at a hospital for free for everyone like that's something we don't even have yeah, now I was gonna like, say, we don't even have that today um universal suffrage decriminalization of homosexuality like a really impressive amount of things that even today are still like demands we're fighting around we're able mm-hmm. to be one after october albeit for a short time but it kind of provides a glimpse of like what are some of the immediate steps we would want to take Exciting. Riveting. Very riveting. Also sad. There's points that are are very sad. Points that are sad. Especially after. And then, you know, this retelling is mostly about 1917 itself. Um, And then there's the Bolsheviks in power and then the rise of 
Stalin and Stalinism, and that's a, a whole other episode. Um, and again, as Kristen said earlier, that's probably what most people associate with the Russian Revolution and maybe with Russia now. And that's kind of the the main line you hear against socialism as a whole is like, eh, it'd be nice, but, you know, it always just leads to a dictatorship or it always just leads to people dying. It's just, you know, look at Russia. It was horrible. And so I think reclaiming that legacy of the Russian Revolution and then as socialists, revolutionary socialists, being clear with what we mean when we say socialism and the Russian Revolution is a fantastic example. And Todd, in his interview, um, which will come after, talks a lot about the lasting legacy of the Russian Revolution. And so I'm sure there's some people who think it's just, you know, Russia, Lenin, all that stuff that's just for white guys in the academy. But really this event and the Bolsheviks as a party and, you know, Lenin as a person inspired revolutionaries across the world across generations. And that is a legacy that we also want to learn more about. And so I think if you're sympathetic to someone like Eugene Debs, Che, the fight against, the fight, um, the fight against apartheid in South Africa, um, all of these struggles looked to the Bolsheviks for inspiration. And so I think it's absolutely worth learning about. And it's also just a really exciting story. There's a movie called Reds that follows Americans, but is kind of follows them through the Russian Revolution. That's really great. It's incredibly long, but <laughs> it's so long. it's so long. It's Jack Nicholson's though. in it. Um, Beatty's in it. But if you want like a small glimpse of what it was like at the time to just have all these people, I mean, if you just read the descriptions, it's it's amazing. Like everywhere you would walk, people are discussing politics and their ideas are changing so fast, and they themselves are deciding what to do. You know, we can only dream of a time when when people are out on the streets, you know, discussing what is the next political move um, because we have the power. Yeah, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Todd. And I highly encourage you to check out his book. It is called Eyewitness to the Russian Revolution, and it is published by Haymarket. Hi, this is Too Long for Twitter. You can find us on twitter.com at Too Fucking Long. We're also on iTunes and Patreon. If you have time, we'd highly encourage you to hit that subscribe button, give us those stars, and if you want to, please donate to our Patreon. It helps us keep producing this show. We'll be right back. Hello, we are here at uh, the Howard Zinn Book Fair in San Francisco at City College of San Francisco. And I'm sitting here with Todd Cretion, and we're going to talk about Russia, specifically um, his new book from Haymarket Books on the Russian Revolution and why the revolution is important today. So, Todd, do you want to just tell us like what your book is about and kind of what led up to you editing it? Thanks very much for having me here. Um, and uh, too long for Twitter, right? Yeah. That's a pretty cool name. I love that. Uh, so everybody should get their too long for Twitter swag. I like the little stickers. It was very cool. Haymarket asked me to do this anthology, Eyewitnesses to the Russian Revolution, which is available at haymarketbooks.org. Um, and it's on the 100th anniversary of the 
Russian Revolution. For socialists, and there's the great thing about having been a socialist for a little while, the great thing is that there are just tens of thousands of people in the United States, but all over the world, who are coming back to the idea that if capitalism is the problem, then socialism has to be the answer. And there is now a very rich discussion going on about how do you get socialism? What does socialism mean? Can it be bottom-up democratic or is it top-down bureaucratic? And so the Russian Revolution for a very long time was both an inspiration to the global left, really, but also anybody's attitude towards the events of the Russian Revolution went a long ways toward determining their strategies and their tactics and their view of socialism for the future. We could get into it, but obviously, initially, the Russian Revolution was an enormous inspiration. And then, with its collapse and its replacement by Stalinism, that then set the terms for the 20th century about associating socialism or communism with bureaucratic top-down regimes. And the point of this book is to say, you can have a critique of what went wrong, but before you have a critique of what went wrong, you have to know what went right. And The Eyewitnesses to the Russian Revolution is a book that, if you haven't learned much about the Russian Revolution before, there's a little introduction that will kind of set the table for you. And then it goes chronologically through all of 1917, and it tells the story of the Russian Revolution from different viewpoints, from sometimes antagonistic, sometimes complimentary, but eyewitness accounts of people who were there, people who were participants, or they were journalists, or they were accidental tourists who happened to see what was going on. So it tells about each of the key events during the Russian Revolution from several points of view. So I think it's a useful book for people who want to learn about the Russian Revolution. I will make a plug. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to do this. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to do this, that if you want to read another book that I think would be an excellent complimentary to this is China Mayville's book, October. That's a wonderful book that's a narrative, as he says, narrative history of the Russian Revolution. That book will give you all the tools you need to use this book to understand the eyewitness accounts and the different points of view. If you want to be ambitious, and read a couple books that are 250 pages long. I think they're great books and you'll have fun doing it. Those two books, you'll walk away and you will know more about the Russian Revolution than 99% of people uh, and you'll be able to go to Thanksgiving and Christmas and argue your heart out. Listeners, if you want to argue at Thanksgiving about the Bolsheviks, go for it. We would love for that to be the result of this episode. So one question I have, you know, with the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution and your book and uh, China Mieville's book, I think for some people, there's a question of like, why should we study this? Why does this even matter? And especially for people who are new to socialism, maybe they think, oh, well, you know, that's what socialists in the 30s, 40s, 60s, whatever, that's what they back then cared about. But us, we can kind of start fresh. We don't need to worry about these maybe, quote, sectarian things about Stalinism or whatever. We can just start with Bernie Sanders or whatever. So I'm wondering how you can relate this huge historical event to like relevance for young socialists and specifically young American socialists today. That's a great question. And uh, I'll just take your cue. You mentioned Bernie Sanders. He has done an enormous amount to popularize the ideas of of a version of socialism. Uh, My opinion is it's a fairly moderate version of socialism, but nonetheless, an idea that people deserve the right to health care, that they should have the right to a job, that they should have full family paid medical leave, that we have to save the environment, that the banks are the problem, et cetera, et cetera. Really important demands that Bernie has raised. People probably know or maybe have heard that Bernie Sanders' historical political hero in American history is a man by the name of Eugene Victor Debs. I think that Bernie actually has a portrait of Eugene Victor Debs on his office in Burlington, Vermont. To your question about why should people care about this, take it from Bernie Sanders' 
political mentor, Eugene V. Debs. And this is what Eugene V. Debs said about the Bolshevik Revolution. He said, in Germany and Russia, our valiant comrades are leading the proletarian revolution, which knows no race, no color, no sex, no boundary lines. Let us, like them, scorn and repudiate the cowardly compromisers within our own ranks, challenge and defy the robber class power, and fight it out on that line to victory or death. From the crown of my head to the soles of my feet, I am a Bolshevik and proud of it. You probably heard Bernie use that quote in his speech to the Democratic National Convention. Joke, that's a joke. You can hear all laughing, right? Um, just to say that Bernie has a certain understanding of Eugene Debs, but I would argue that Eugene Debs has an understanding about the Russian Revolution that I would consider uh, very important to investigate. So for young people, there's a little historical entry. If people ask you why you care about the Russian Revolution, tell them Bernie Sanders' political mentor says you have to care about it. That's number one. But number two, the more important reason, is that despite... 100 years of slander, despite 100 years of the American ruling class telling people that they do not have the right to understand and study what happened during the Russian Revolution, I don't believe that you should let the American government and the rich people in this country determine what you know about and what you don't know about. Because the Russian Revolution has lessons that are critical for our movement, and there have been many mass struggles and many important revolutions that we can all study from American history or international history from the civil rights movement to more current things, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, Me Too, the enormous outpouring against sexual assault. We can learn about the social and protest dynamics that have happened in all these places, and we absolutely should, and we should participate in all those. The unique thing about the Russian Revolution is that it's really the only time in working class history where a few things have come together. A just absolutely massive and deep radical working class movement, actually an international movement of people of various uh, ethnic backgrounds all across the Russian Empire. So an incredible mass working class revolutionary movement combined with a political party who put its money where its mouth is. And the Bolshevik party said, the point of our political organization is to assist the working class in coming to power and get rid of capitalism. And a country that went into such a profound crisis because of World War I that it shattered the unity of the ruling class and allowed the people to push through and change the system. So those elements of resistance from below, of political organization, and crisis at the top, I think we have to, well, we should expect to see crisis at the top. Mm -hmm. We're already seeing rebellions from below, and we are just in the very beginning stages of seeing a new generation of people consider how do we begin to build revolutionary political organizations, political parties. And so I think the Russian Revolution has a lot to teach us on all those questions. And one thing you said in your talk this morning that really stuck with me is how, like, for a lot of activists today, especially activists my age that have literally not experienced anything except austerity, war in the Middle East, total decimation of working class movements that we're just so used to resisting things and saying, I don't want this war. I don't want this specific individual politician, um, which are all obviously really valid political positions to have. But we haven't really had the experience of fighting for something and then taking power and then doing that thing. You know, you can't even imagine or wrap your brain around what that would be like. Maybe you could if you read these books. Could you talk a little bit about that aspect, the aspect of taking power and what you said about the Bolsheviks, like delivering on those promises to actually um, not just be against these things, but actually then be for something and put it into action? You're in your mid-20s, right? I'm 25. 
25. So if you think you got it bad, then the whole thing about your whole life you've only seen defeat, well, I'm 48 and my whole life I've only seen defeat because I've lived through the teeth of neoliberalism and neoliberalism has just run amok across the planet laying waste to all the reforms we won in the 60s and 70s, bringing the planet to the edge of environmental catastrophe, uh, the rollback for rights of women, uh, civil rights, et cetera, et cetera, the destruction, the practical destruction of the trade union movement in this country. We have been resisting, but we've been resisting in a losing battle. There's a few exceptions, winning gay marriage, uh, the change in consciousness of LGBTQ politics. Those are important transformations. But on the whole, we've been losing my entire political life. So maybe it's something to do with me. I don't know. Maybe I should retire. <laughs> Again, the Russian Revolution shows that, as you were saying, we're accustomed as activists to oppose what the ruling class does to us. And often the limits of our political imagination are defined by stop the war that you've started. Mm -hmm stop the police from killing young black people, free people from the prisons, that women have lost their right to access to abortion. So we're demanding that the ruling class, which is taking these things away or imposing new conditions on us, uh, that they stop doing these things. What they did in the Russian Revolution is they started with those things. The soldiers said, stop the war. The workers said, we need a raise. The peasants said, we need access to the land. Women said, we want the right to vote, et cetera, et cetera. The oppressed nationalities, which constituted half of the Russian Empire, um, the oppressed nationalities said, we want equality. So they were demanding all of these reforms from the ruling class. And there were many socialists and there were many radical activists, many political activists, who supported the people in making those demands on the ruling class. They're perfectly legitimate to do so. The unique thing about the Bolsheviks and other revolutionaries uh, who were outside the Bolshevik party is they said, instead of simply protesting what the ruling class does to us, we should get rid of the ruling class and be able to democratically make our own decisions about how to invest the resources of our country, foreign policy, democratic rights, liberation of the oppressed. And it's not enough to simply ask your rulers to treat you fairly. The Bolsheviks argue you need to replace the ruling class, which has an interest in maintaining its profits and its power and these systems of oppression and war in order to defend those. You need to replace that class break its political power and replace it with a bottom-up democratic mass uh, working class uh, government. And that's what they did in the early days of the Russian Revolution. That was so inspirational to even hear. So what do you think that means for party building and movement building today? It's a great question and you cannot and you shouldn't expect to map the historical experience of other people's revolutions onto exactly what you're going to do tomorrow. Uh, even Lenin argued in his famous book, State and Revolution, that the particular form of our revolution looked like this. People in other countries, their revolution is going to look different. Learn from our experience, but don't foolishly try to repeat it. That's not politics. That's mimicry. And that's not going to be how things happen. But the advantage that we have looking back, and this wasn't actually only the Bolsheviks, but there was a real sense in the early 20th century, and it actually continued right up through the 1960s. So from the Bolsheviks in Russia to the Communist Party in the United States, and then a generation later to the Black Panther Party, the idea that you have to fight in the movements, you have to participate in the movements, you have to build the unions. Today, we have to demand single payer. We have to try to stop our country from droning, bombing everybody all the time. All We have to participate in these movements as activists. If you don't do that, you don't have the right to say anything about anything. So that's the precondition to having a political opinion that matters to anybody, is that you have to put yourself in the line. You have to participate. But having said that, if we don't have an attitude towards 
bringing people together in political organizations and we just fight on separate fronts and if we don't have revolutionary organizations and socialist organizations that aspire to not only protest but eventually to take power and to assist the working class in taking power then it also affects how we view movements today so one of the debates in the Russian Revolution between the moderate socialists and the Bolsheviks is the moderate socialists said, yes, we should demand our rights, but we should try to come to a compromise with the ruling class and ask them to grant partial rights in exchange for loyalty to the nation, and in this instance, loyalty to continuing the First World War. We get that offer all the time. We will support equal marriage if you support the dismantling of the welfare state. We will support... Uh, limited path to legalization for DACA recipients if you sacrifice your parents and they get deported. If you stand up for uh, health care, we can't include abortion in that. So the liberals always ask you to cut a deal and to chop off one part of the oppressed or the working class. We need political organizations that go into all of those social movements, those trade union struggles, the fight for our rights, and say, yes, we will participate with everybody in a united front to win the things we're fighting for, at the same time as we say, we eventually need to build a mass socialist party because the bosses have two parties and we don't have a single party. So we have to both build the movements and build political socialist organization. Yeah, and I think one thing that studying the Russian Revolution also shows us is just that like you said, there's a legacy of, of Stalinism, the Cold War, especially in America. You're kind of taught these really um, inaccurate or warped ideas about the Russian Revolution, but studying it really does show you what can happen when we can win, right? Like so many things that happened immediately, starting peace negotiations during the war, you know, legalizing divorce for women, abortion, just all these things that we know are important and we wish we could have in our own society, but we can't, like you said, because of the Democratic and Republican parties. And so I think studying the Russian Revolution just gives a lot of hope and can just make you feel <laughs> way less hopeless when your whole life has been defeats on the left, especially in the Bay Area, when your whole life has been like sectarianism and like wacky things, you know that there is something we're fighting for. It's socialism and it can happen. And I guess just one of my last questions is to talk about the legacy of the Russian Revolution um, in an international aspect, because a lot of people say, oh, it was just, you know, a bunch of white dudes and who cares? And it's so Eurocentric to think about the Russian Revolution. That's something I've heard a couple people say um, in different spaces, and I just would love to hear how you kind of come back at things like that. It's one of those instances where people have been taught to think that way by the ruling class. Mm -hmm. This is nothing to do with you. This is an alien, foreign concept, and you shouldn't worry about it. Uh, in fact, you should be hostile to it. The funny thing about the accusation that it's Eurocentric or it's just something that white guys care about the vast majority of people in the world since the Russian Revolution who have cared about the Russian Revolution have been people of color. Um, although they wouldn't consider themselves to be people of color because they just were South African freedom fighters. So they would be like, I'm African, I'm not a person. Like it's an American centric conception that like China are filled with people of color. It's like, it's, you know, it's a bizarre American centric concept. But for the purposes of this discussion, say that most people in the world in Indonesia into the 1970s before Henry Kissinger and the American government 
and the CIA helped the Indonesian regime slaughter a half a million Indonesian communists. So the Indonesian Communist Party by itself was far bigger than the communist movement ever was in the United States. So it's really not a white guy thing. Um, if you don't want to take it from me, take it from Nelson Mandela. So when Nelson Mandela was released from prison after 24 years of solitary confinement on Robben Island, he won his freedom because of just an absolutely inspirational mass struggle of African workers fighting against apartheid. And when Mandela got released from prison, he gave a speech, which you can just Google, look it up on YouTube. It's an inspiring speech. And he says, I salute the African National Congress. I salute the Coalition of South African Trade Unions. I salute Mkantu Asizwe, which was the armed wing of the ANC. And he says, finally, I salute the comrades of the South African Communist Party. And he understood the Communist Party of South Africa, which took its direct inspiration from the Russian Revolution to be a key component of the anti-apartheid struggle. In fact, three years later, one of the key leaders of the South African Communist Party, a man by the name of Chris Hani, who's an African uh, leader, was assassinated by white fascists outside of his house. And the assassination of Chris Hani, leader of the South African Communist Party, led to an absolutely massive rebellion all throughout South Africa. And that rebellion, the general strike, urban insurrection, finally forced the white South African apartheid leaders to abandon any hope of continuing negotiations with Mandela and trying to delay the overthrow of apartheid. And immediately his death in South Africa led within months to the elections which overturned apartheid. So if you just want an example of like why the Russian Revolution matters, the fight against apartheid is one of the most inspirational struggles in my lifetime. And it was it had a very strong legacy, a component that cared about the Russian Revolution. And that's been true in the revolution in Chile. If you go to Brazil or Argentina or Egypt, the idea amongst that we have this prejudice in the American left that we shouldn't care about the Russian Revolution, that's a particularly American prejudice. If you go to other countries, the revolutionary left in those countries doesn't just do what the Bolsheviks did, but they understand the Russian Revolution as a key component of our collective revolutionary tradition. You know, the Bay Area is is got an enormous, deep, rich history of political struggle. Uh, the Panthers were formed over in Oakland. Um, the ILWU, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, uh, was formed of a general strike in 1934 because the police executed workers on the street. The longshoremen became the most powerful, most multiracial, most communist union in the country. Um, the the uh, the anti-war movement really was centered in Berkeley uh, for a long time. You can go through all the history. And then people don't even remember that just 10 years ago, just out the street, there were a half a million immigrant workers and their families marching in the street to defend themselves against the Sensenbrenner legislation. And in Oakland, there were a quarter million at the same time, and there were half a million in San, San Jose the same day. Just absolutely enormous big protests. Occupy Oakland, which, you know, I spent, I don't know how much time out there. Um, so it, it's an incredible, it's an incredible legacy. And um, the only thing I would say is learn from that legacy, participate. If you're new to the area, jump right in, find an organization to join and participate. Um, and I really love to spread the Bay Area spirit and organization to the rest of the country, because I think uh, the rest of the country can learn from the Bay. And I think probably there's also parts of the other rest of the country that can teach a few things to the Bay.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Too Long for Twitter. I'm Erica West. And I'm Kristen Sheets. You can find this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also uh, subscribe on Patreon. And if you feel so inclined, you can throw us a couple bucks. You can also find us on Twitter at Too Fucking Long. Um, our producers are Josh Wilner and Casey Stone. Our music, as always, is uh, performed by False Priest. Also, is it just me or every time I have a microphone in front of my face, I feel so fucking dumb. <laughs> like, I don't know how to say a Twitter handle. I can't remember to say, we'll be right back. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon. Conversation is good. It's just if we're you're coming in after the theme music, we should. It'll be easier to cut it in. Yes. Give more. Thank you. Um, Our lovely producer Josh saving, saving us. I was just um, getting beers with people before this, and I mentioned like, oh, a producer, and someone was like, oh, Casey, and I was like, no, there's another one, a secret one.